0: Welcome to That Anthro Podcast, the podcast dedicated to anthropology. Together, each week, we will be learning from the experts and researchers that are researching our pasts and today's problems. My name is Gabriella Campbell, and I'll be interviewing a new guest each week to bring to you the latest and greatest in anthropology. Join me for weekly episodes, whether you're an anthropology buff or looking to learn something new. Welcome to That anthro podcast hello everyone welcome to a special episode of that anthro podcast i know i normally post on wednesdays but my roommate meg hardy is a huge halloween fan so it seemed only fitting that i would release their episode on halloween so i hope you enjoy in the beginning we touch on her two black cats her love of halloween the different costumes that uh, they did this year, just all of the things, but then don't worry, we move into the normal anthro stuff, how she got involved in anthropology, what her undergrad experience was like, the different internships they've done, things like that. So please Enjoy. Actually, before we start, I wanted to say, uh, make sure you stick around to the end, because towards the end, we talk about Meg's job as a contract osteologist for the Smithsonian in the repatriation department, and um, Meg is super passionate about repatriation and indigenous rights, so I'm really thankful that Meg was willing to talk about all of the different things from their thesis to the work that they do now, actually doing repatriation, Um, I hope you all enjoy, and uh, Meg is a dear, dear, dear roommate. I'm really thankful that I got to meet her, so please enjoy this episode. All right, podcast listeners. Today we have my roommate, Meg Hardy, who is a graduate from GMU's um, MA program in anthropology. That's how we met. And I was lucky enough to uh, end up living with her. And I'm like, how many other roommates do we have? Three other roommates. (laughs) And then I'm the the fifth. yeah, so welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, um, Us and our entire zoo house mm-hmm. of
1: anthropologists and and yeah. pets and whatnot. Yes. I'm so glad to have you here.
0: I'm glad yeah. that we could make that connection early on and make that happen. Yeah, it's really funny because this is only the second podcast I've ever recorded in person and we're sitting like and we're doing it in the living room from each other like <laughs> 11:30 a.m on a Friday. Um, but I wanted to start because uh, she's done it t- I think three times this morning or twice, and then yes. needed affirmation three times. Uh, you have two cats. <laughs> I do. One. One's name is Vincent, and one's yes. name is Morella. You uh, got Morella first, and mm-hmm. why don't you tell us about Morella, one of Morella's many adorable oh, wow. little quirks? Um, her little quirky self,
1: I mean, where do you start? I think the one that is most prominent in people's minds once they've lived with her uh, is her ability to. To kill her toys, and this has not actually been documented on any uh, any form of media. We only know from the sounds that that she has killed something. It's a very specific sound. I'm not going to try to imitate, no. um, because it's just it's incomprehensible uh-huh, yeah. what's going on. But you can hear it in the tenor of her voice. Uh-huh. She has something she's accomplished, and you need to go invalidate her she needs to be witnessed she needs to be seen um so three times already this morning she has made the call Mm -hmm. to us yes and we have assembled to make Mm -hmm. sure that she has an audience for her killing of the very special round uh cat Mm -hmm. toy that she has i literally went upstairs without hearing her say anything i went up and i opened the door and she was still sitting directly behind it Mm -hmm. staring at the door yeah like she'd been preparing for her next
0: performance yep she uh it's a very specific meow and it gets louder the (laughs) longer you wait and the first time i went up this morning apparently i didn't say the right things because i came back sat down on the couch and she just started again i was like all right your your mom needs to go there." check
1: on her (laughs) yeah
0: uh but it was funny because i you know what we've been living together like two and a half three months now august september october almost three. three yeah and um I didn't realize that that was something she she came to you doing. Yes, yes. She
1: came to me with a lot of her own little specialties. Um, fetching is one of her uh. favorite things to do. Vincent, I think, might have learned that from her because oh, okay. he also started doing that just of his own agency. Neither of them are really trained. They just no. kind of like mm-hmm. pick up these little <laughs> behaviorisms that I'm very happy to demonstrate to people. Yeah. Um, but she loves to play fetch. Uh, she... Likes to wake me up in the morning by gently pawing my face. Like,
0: she's just a... She's her own little
1: person, and I really appreciate her.
0: Yeah, for, for the podcast listeners that are dedicated Daisy fans, uh, <laughs> they are twin spirits, Absolutely. just in different forms. Yes. They're both toothless wonders. Absol- oh, my God. Both rescues. Found uh, on the streets. Yeah.
1: Mo was a trailer park baby, mm-hmm. so... Yeah. Missing half of her teeth at this and point. And they both
0: just really want to be left left alone... They like the people that they like, Mm -hmm. uh, but other animals, not, not too much. Uh, They both like deal with it. Like they've both learned. So we have three cats in the house, Morella, Vincent, and Kieran, and they've both kind of like (laughs) learned to like deal with Kieran. Um, And uh, I'm still learning to deal with Kieran.
1: He's just got so much energy. I, I appreciate him and his, his endless curiosity. Mm -hmm. I think yesterday he got in the um, dishwasher. Yes, he So, I mean, he- Thank
0: goodness it was He empty. is
1: an explorer. He I, is. I think he'd have some very interesting research questions if, if we were to get into his little cat brain.
0: He would have a lot of yeah. things to ask. Whereas Vincent's just all Vincent, yellow eye.
1: Vincent is just staring and loving, Morella mm-hmm. is an omen, uh, uh, you know, she has so much knowledge behind- behind those little eyes.
0: We don't know what yeah. she's seen.
1: Yeah.
0: All right. So yeah, that's that's the cats. There'll be some pictures posted for sure. Some of you have already seen some photos if you follow the Instagram. Uh, Morella's the, I always say brindle for dogs, but I don't think that's yeah, what you she's call Yeah, she's a tortoiseshell. Tortiseshell. Yep. Okay. Yeah. And then Vincent's black. Although the other day he was standing in the yeah. sun and mm-hmm. his chest looked very brown. That's the thing with cats, actually, none of them have a fully black pigment
1: to their mm-hmm. fur. Even when they look like they have black fur, they're actually just a very, very dark brown. And if you look at them, too, in certain sunlights, even with Vincent, um, you can see, like, I have a cat at home. He's a tuxedo, which is the black and white variation. You can see the actual tabby stripes that are, like, underlaying their fur. So, like, if in certain lights, you might see Vincent have, like, this undulating pattern on him. That's his technical stripes that he still has.
0: That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) karen's a gray tabby and uh daisy has one singular black hair on her back there we go just one she
1: likes variety she mm-hmm. wants to make sure
0: that she's got i like play with mind. it and i'm like i kind of want to pull it out but like i know that's gonna hurt but it's, <gasps> no it's what just like three more grow back it's, <laughs> i know it's just like the i don't know what it is it's like the child in me that's like the one to singular get rid of like different yeah i don't know what it is <laughs> um all right so this episode is airing on Halloween, yeah. and part of the reason that I wanted to do that and have you on specifically as the guest for Halloween is because you love Halloween. Oh God, yes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> we've been watching horror and spooky movies in the house. We did a Hocus Pocus watch party. We're so having a exciting. Halloween party tomorrow. Yes, like, it's, it's it? actually happening tomorrow. Um, and so I want to just, just kind of start by, mm. like, first of all, why do you love Halloween? Oh man, I I really have to think about this
1: because there's something like dualistic about my approach to Halloween and what it is to me. Um, I think from the beginning, because it's always been my favorite holiday. Mm. It must have just been this conglomeration of like all of my different interests as a kid, mm. and sort of the. It's not a word I would have used as a child, but now, like the aesthetics of it, yeah. were really pleasing to me. It was yeah. like the colors yeah. and the <laughs> imagery and the symbolism. All of it was really just drawing me in. And I don't know, I was always really good with horror as a child. I remember throughout middle school, like every sleepover that I would go to, it was just horror movie after horror movie after horror. All like B, C rated films too. Um, But they were so good to watch as a kid because it's like you're not seeing the disturbing content, but you're seeing stuff that's like entertaining. But, you know, the more I kind of understand my interest in things and like specifically um, holidays or performances, stuff like that, I think of like the expression that is sort of allowed in this holiday, like you get to dress up, you get to take on a different form or a different character. Mm -hmm. Um, And I do that in a lot of my other hobbies. So I think that that aspect to it as well is really attractive to me and, you know, the amount of memories that you can make with your friends it's such a friend-based sure. holiday it's like, like you don't go home to your family on Halloween yeah you get your friends together and you do like fun outrageous things yeah. all night we have uh jello shot molds of eyeballs in the fridge that we're sitting right now everyone's over 21 everyone is over 21 yep. we will have to make yep. that very
0: clear <laughs> I'm, the, I'm the youngest in the house and I am 21 but uh, everyone else is exactly, everyone's exactly. age. but yes we do have eyeball shots and then Conversely, because we have Mariah, who's always thinking about our our well-being, um, a jello brain mold that's made with uh, liquid death or liquid IV. I think it's liquid IV. Liquid IV. IV. Liquid death is uh, the drink. Yeah, so it hydrates you Mm -hmm. quicker do you have a memory of your favorite halloween that is podcast appropriate
1: podcast appropriate okay so i think the first thing that comes to mind and this is probably because it's so like recent in memory um but last halloween was very fun um because it was like the first time that our cohort had really been able to come together to do any kind of event yeah um and that was you know almost a year and a half into me being in the program Mm -hmm. so it was kind of a different experience from what the last two years had been for me uh i dressed up as frankenfurter from rocky horror picture show because i had very recently watched the movie for the first time and i loved it to a degree that i was like i'm gonna get a tattoo quoting this movie like i want to know all of the songs heart by heart um so i dressed up as Frank and Ferdinand showed up at this party of mostly people who did not know me had never met me in real life um and nice. no one recognized me aside from like two or three people and other people were like oh my god
2: wait that's meg
1: and then other people like i'm not even exaggerating probably dozens because um, mariah was her mm-hmm. house party she had four roommates at the time mm-hmm and all of them invited so many people. So they were just a ton of people that I'd never met before and they had no idea who I was. They have only ever met me as Frank Did you wear like the lingerie? I wore everything, oh, okay. yeah, 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 I had the whole fit going on. I had the fishnets, we yeah. were in like a crop top, it was yeah. corseted, it was a whole fit. Um, I had a wig and I had the full makeup for like the opening scene okay. of of his introduction out of the, out of the elevator. Let's
0: do the time <laughs>
1: Yeah, it was me entering like how do yeah. It was it was the whole thing and and I woke up the next day, had a second party to go to, and I did the entire oh, full get up second day in a row yeah. after I like rallied myself at six PM. Um oh. But it dedication. was it was very, very fun because I think that was the most I'd gotten into, like, making my own costume and sort of mm-hmm. trying to embody the character I was yeah. going for. Um, and it
0: apparently went really well because people still remember me as Pink Panther. Yeah, I'm going to need to see pictures after this because oh, yeah. that's I,
1: iconic. I have, like, two different posts of it and everyone was just going, "How? Yeah. how is
0: this real? Yeah, yeah so there have been quite a few costumes planned for this halloween a few have been executed Mm -hmm. um one was attempted to be executed one and then it it's was gonna raining be pushed, pushed um, this weekend so what what's the what's the group costume for tomorrow so the group costume for tomorrow so
1: for our house party we are dressing as characters from the mummy um which is a cult classic film i've seen it i think seven times now and all of those seven times have been within the last year <laughs> i think it's like a group tradition or activity that we do it's like yeah. every month we just someone says you know what I want to watch and yeah. we're all, like the mummy and it's like yeah that's exactly yeah. what I was going to say um so we're having the group costume be the mummy we all kind of like had our assignments of who we were dressing up as based off of like which characters do we like who mm-hmm. do we feel like we can embody the best um I am going to be dressing as Ardeth Bay, the Magi nice. so I'm going to be doing a bit of layering with the, the black clothing which I mean <clears throat> typical for me anyway yeah. <laughs> so it should not be difficult I bought a bunch of like extra and life. layers that
0: I can do. So it should be very fun. Yeah. And um, let's see. Celia is going to be Bri- uh, Brendan Fraser. I don't yes. know what his character's name is.
1: Oh my gosh. Heaven McConnell. Gosh.
0: Yeah. Got it. And then, uh, I don't what's Mariah going to be? Mariah is going to be Evie.
1: Oh, She's going to be, yeah, the librarian. Of course,
0: yes. And then her boyfriend is going to be the mummy. Right. And yeah. he has fully committed to it. I believe. Apparently. I believe I, he's, like, I am mean, not surprised. David's a theater kid, you yeah. know.
1: We... Get it. I really hope he shows up in a bald cap. If he doesn't, I'm going to be disappointed,
0: oh, but yes. like I'll accept it. Yeah, and so then our other roommate, Cody, is going as Pinhead. <laughs> we, we are saran wrapping his head, painting it white, yes. and gluing Q-tips on it. <laughs> yes. And then I'm going as a flapper because I already have the costume. Um, and I, I want to preface, because I did talk about this on the other episode, vintage fashion, not values. There we go. So Vintage um, fashion. I love that. Yeah, because, you know, the 20s was a, ty- a really tough time for a lot of people. You know, mm-hmm. minorities... Um, so when we, when we dress up, I don't like to glorify the 1920s, but I do feel like it, you know, it is fun. Like I'm dressing up like from Mm -hmm. the great Gatsby. So try to put it in the context of that and remove it from, uh, the way people acted and treated others at that time. Um, all right. So yeah, that's, that's our Halloween. That's our our Halloween introduction. Yes. Our house is decorated. We have a skeleton that is not real. It's a plaster skeleton, or a cast skeleton, Sharon, that lives in our house. Year round, she's followed um, me from
1: Ohio all the oh, way to here. Wow. Okay. Oh yeah. I know that.
0: She was actually
1: a birthday present um, from one of my best friends back in Columbus. Who I I think I came home from work and it had been like a really long shift, and I walked in, and there was just a full life-size human skeleton oh. like um, classroom model sitting yeah. on my couch, oh. um, and I cried. I I actually had to cry because. It's amazing. It is. It's an expensive object. Like, yeah. I don't know how much this actually cost. I never asked him because you don't I mean, ask people how much gifts cost, but that a was a lot of money. A lot of money. $700. Yeah. Yes.
0: Yeah. But yes, again, it is It is cast. It's, it's not real bones. No, it is not. Um, we do not have
1: real bones in the house other no. than the ones inside of our bodies. Yes.
0: <laughs> Excellent point. And yes. inside <laughs> the bodies of our uh,
1: animals. And, yes, those as well. Yeah. Other, other
0: than Morella, who is an alien. But <laughs> yeah literally <laughs> is it weird that when daisy passes i want to keep one of her bones no yeah, I just don't one it all not like her skull or anything but just like one mm-hmm. um the rest i want cremated yeah um, i totally understand maybe. that i
1: kept um this is kind of related my cat's in the past like my parents cats when i lived with them i would keep their whiskers because it was like a little memory of them it's kind of akin to the way that people used to like have clippings of people's hair i guess yeah um which i've never
0: actually made that connection until just now yeah my friend's hamster just passed and when she did i think she cremated or some something Mm -hmm. um they gave her a little clipping of oh, the fur. Yeah, and they did a really sweet like paw. I was about to her. say,
1: how tiny were those paw prints? I'll be show you the picture hamster. after. They're so teeny. tiny. Yeah, it's
0: probably
1: like and a dime. You know,
0: it was crazy too when I like first met the hamster. She's like, yeah, blah blah. They were rescues, and I'm sitting there rolling my eyes. How do you rescue a hamster? I'm sitting there rolling my eyes, like, I love you. You're my best friend. I'm not going to go into oh, the fact no. that like you bought them at a store. No, no. In Los Angeles, yes, there is such a problem. Oh, no. With, I don't think they're wild. I think they're pets that people oh yeah set a free. Ditch. Okay. That the shelters have full sections okay. of hamsters. hamsters, mice, guinea pigs, all sorts of things. Who is catching hamsters out in the wilds in of Los Angeles, Angeles? Like, I don't know. If I but she
1: was volunteering at a shelter, well, and she fell fair, in love with some little hamsters. I tried to pick up a rat when I was in DC last, so yeah. like I kind of understand. If if I saw a hamster on the ground, it would definitely come okay. home with me. Yeah.
0: So that was funny because I was like about ready to like give her shit about the fact that they're not rescues. And then she's, like, not res- she's like, no, Gabby, no. when I went to the shelter, Real? like they literally, like they have hamsters. They have lots of them. And I was like, okay, That's like, so wild. wow. Anyway, rest in peace, BuzzBuzz. Buzz. So you just mentioned that you used to live in Ohio. I did. So I actually don't know, ha- like what made you, so you, you're born and raised in Missouri. Mm-hmm. What made you pick to attend the Ohio State oh University God. because Hagen and temple have made me say the ohio state and i
1: never do everyone everyone i've ever known who's gone to that school other than like the older adults who have been in in those programs we just call it osu or ohio state but yeah apparently the um the word the is now trademarked within that title so i don't know what the real intention is it's annoying um but (laughs) to to digress uh to my love for the school actually the reason that i originally ended up attending there was, you know, in high school, you get all of those letters Mm -hmm. um, advertising to you these different programs from around the country. And I did this, you know, little quirky thing where I had all of the letters collected for, I think, around seven or eight months. Mm -hmm. And I put them all out on my floor and Mm -hmm. organized them by school uh, and then by like alphabetized name of the school, whatever. And OSU, I had never heard of before Mm -hmm. coming from Missouri. You know, it's pretty far away. It's like seven, seven and a half hours, depending on how fast you're driving. And I didn't really know about schools outside of what's in Missouri, what's in my region, Mm -hmm. and then the names of Ivy League colleges. Mm -hmm. So I hadn't really thought about, you know, planning ahead which schools am I gonna try to apply for uh, entrance for undergrad until I saw all of these letters and I was like, OK, I should probably yeah. you know, look into the fact that there are actually hundreds of schools yeah. I could go to for this. Um, and in doing all of my research, I was looking for and prioritizing uh, universities that had both anthropology and English programs. And OSU turned out to be one that had very, very strong research and programs in both of those mm-hmm. departments. So that was the original reason that I actually like sent in my application. Mm-hmm. Um, And then once i had sent that in i think i applied to four different schools uh and upon getting acceptances and like reading into what i was being offered at all of them Mm -hmm. osu actually provided the most financial support for me Mm -hmm. even though it was out of state yeah um they had the best i guess ratio of like what the cost Mm -hmm. to their financial aid was going to be so i ended up saying let's go um, have like a little tour around there with my parents and my brother came with me and I looked at the campus. I think it was like the middle of winter because I remember wearing my like really big red winter jacket and it just happens to be the school colors. Um, (laughs) right. But I, I had only gone on two physical tours of schools and it was at OSU and then at Mizzou, which is University of Missouri in, um, Columbia, Missouri. And I went there with my friend because she was already, student there the year before. And I felt much more drawn to the campus at Ohio Mm -hmm. and just kind of like the busyness of it and how sort of natural they've kept the landscape Mm. there. Even though there's like a lot of buildings and there are a lot of like brick and glass, they also have these really historic structures there that they've maintained um, as like residence halls or lecture halls. And a lot of like really pretty trees. So for some reason, you know, that in my mind was like, okay, this could be really a good place for me to grow and like experience things and learn as an adult. Uh, It was also both close to and far from home. Mm. Having lived in the same area, like Mm -hmm. literally 18 years, I had really wanted to be somewhere that was different.
0: Yeah also like not in tornado alley not in tornado
1: alley um <laughs> everyone there was really confused as to why i freaked out about thunder and lightning but they didn't get it mm-hmm. uh, but i i love my family and i love mm-hmm. being back and seeing missouri but it was like i've spent so much time here and i want to experience something else and be somewhere else while also having that like security and safety of hey, I can get in my car and if I mm-hmm. drive seven hours down Highway 70, I'm going to be back home. Is it just straight down the highway? It is That's literally crazy. one highway, wow. the entire way there. That's <laughs> it crazy. was really convenient for me, who doesn't really like highway driving. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was it was kind of the best of both situations where I could be away from home, but I also knew how to get back and it wasn't yeah. like I had to take a plane there.
0: Yeah. Um, and at what point did you get Marilla? Was that when you were in Ohio? Yeah, okay.
1: she actually was adopted in the summer after I graduated. So she was summer 2019.
0: Um, So you mentioned that you wanted to double major Mm -hmm. in English and ANTH. Yes. Um, (laughs) Why? Why was that like a priority for you to have a major in both? Because obviously, just because you know, you can be interested in something and take classes and you don't have to like major or minor. Mm -hmm. Why for you was it like very important to have a major in both?
1: There is probably like three different ways I can answer this, unfortunately, um, because I have lots of different reasons. I think the first one and this this is the worst, obviously, is that I didn't want to choose um, Mm. because I loved anthropology and I loved the um, the motivations that I had for wanting to be an anthropologist Mm -hmm. at the time was more forensics and human rights related. Mm -hmm. But I really loved the idea of becoming an anthropologist and was very dedicated to that. At the same time, writing has always been something that was very um, very much like an outlet for me and also something that I had gotten a lot of recognition for in school and something that I valued. And I didn't want to give it up. Mm-hmm. Um, I also love to challenge myself in ways that other people are like, "There's literally no reason for you to do this. Why are you doing this?" And the idea of being like, "Oh my gosh, wait, I can double major and I still have, you know, all of the ability to accomplish this within four years, Mm -hmm. why don't I just do both? Yeah. Because a lot of the English major, at least for uh, our program, so to to give the more detailed explanation of like what I was doing, I was double majoring in anthropological sciences and then English creative writing with a minor in forensics. So my English major was specifically uh, directed towards writing creatively, Mm -hmm. so it was like Nonfiction, essays, short stories, poetry, novels, stuff like that. Um, A lot of the classes that you have to take for that major are actually workshops. Mm. So the labor of like the last two ish years for that major is basically getting time to write. Mm. and then presenting that to a class, then getting commentary on your projects and getting to like finalize something that you think is a finished project at the end of the semester. Uh, And then also, of course, getting to give feedback to other students who Mm. are in the same level as you. So I, I just thought that was like such an amazing thing to get to have that community of writers that you can both work with and work towards your own goals within Mm -hmm. um so i just wanted to have both of those majors be part of my life um i also i have i say a lot of the times that i'm like as a career an anthropologist my heart's always been in writing Mm -hmm. a lot of the stuff that i want to accomplish within anthropology itself as a career does go back to like the idea of um, human narrative and mm-hmm. the storytelling of humanity, like trying to have the stories of both individuals and communities heard. Yeah. Um, I'm someone who loves symbolism and meeting. And mm-hmm. that's something that you really have to take into account when you're doing anthropological work mm-hmm. and both English yeah. and anthropology, I think, are like the study of the human condition. Yeah. It's just different approaches to how approaches, you're doing yeah. it and like different um, motivations or objectives that you have. All right. But that, um, Appeal is definitely there in both fields. Mm -hmm. And I, from I think maybe midway through my undergrad experience, started telling people that I really want to tie them together Mm -hmm. Um, as someone who loves both fields and wants to continue uh, interacting with them. I love the idea of being that person who brings a new, Uh, form of anthropology into the field and Mm -hmm. if that has something to do with like the way publications run or the way things are written or how accessible they are um, yeah I think that would be a really amazing way to like conduct my own
0: trajectory in the field definitely and I think like you know this and a lot of our listeners know that like lots of academic publications aren't written yeah in the most like understandable manner Mm -hmm. and I can see that being like a really important thing you know, down the line is like your English background coming in to make it like, it can be professional, but it doesn't have to be like, so dense that you can't like Mm -hmm. get the main points from it. And to be able to write in a fashion that does justice
1: for the communities that you're working Mm -hmm. with as well. It's hard sometimes I feel like to adapt um, like writing styles if someone has a lot of experience in doing something that's very professional or technical Mm -hmm. writing and to approach it in a way that doesn't, Detract from the meaning or the message that descendant communities or other collaborators want to make there. Yeah Uh, And I I hope at least that with the amount of experience that I've had writing both, you know In that major and then in different parts of my career like Mm -hmm. other jobs that I have needed to do publications for it's like I hope that that will give me the skills that it takes to actually um, Bring that
0: to fruition Definitely um, I'm curious because you said you were interested in anthropology before mm-hmm. college. I was as well. How did you get introduced to even like what it was? Oh, you know, the, the way that we all get introduced to it, which is a TV show. Um, <laughs> not entirely
1: though. So I. Oh, yes, Bones. Of course it was. Yeah, absolutely it was. Yeah. Um, and the, the weird part of it is that people are always talking about, oh, well, they just like it because of the drama. Like people want to become anthropologists because of the drama. Mm-hmm. The thing that really motivated me about that show. Was giving back the identity and yeah. the rights to a person who was a victim of violence. Yeah. Um, I had these really high aspirations for myself when I started first looking into becoming a forensic anthropologist. That I was going to do um, mass casualty and like human rights violations work.
0: That's what I wanted to do too, right? Yeah. And
1: I had this, um, I had this vision for myself too of being like a person who could go into high tension or high violence scenarios and be someone who was willing to take that risk and willing to put myself into those situations Mm -hmm. so that that work could be accomplished. Mm -hmm. Because there's always going to be like situations of that nature that, you know, it's not always safe Mm -hmm. for you to be there or the work is more difficult to conduct because you don't have the resources that you would in maybe, you know, a laboratory or somewhere Mm -hmm. else like a medical examiner's office. but that's important work that needs to be done. And it's something that I was like, this is this is possible for me. Mm-hmm. I know myself and I know that I would yeah. want to, to contribute in this way. Um, so I was interested in getting that kind of involvement within the field. And that was when I started looking at anthropology mm-hmm. programs specifically. And when I, uh, OSU did have both the anthropology and the forensics minor, I was like, OK, I'm sold. This for is sure. definitely where I need to go. Yeah. Um- do you want to talk about like why that changed yeah i absolutely can um i had a lot of really great influences in my department in anthropology and in english honestly Mm -hmm. um i had a lot of people who were very supportive of me continuing on in the field whether that be in a forensics context or otherwise um, but I specifically had a really great influence from a history professor who was not in either of those yeah. departments. But I had, um, as an anthropologist in North America, interest in understanding like the history of the country and mm-hmm. also the conflicts that have occurred here. So I was actually enrolled in June, my junior year uh, in a Native American history class. Mm-hmm. And my professor, uh, Dr. Daniel Rivers, was a huge, huge influence for me that year because he was very supportive of the way that I approach our assignments and the interest I had in, like, how does this also factor into the way that I want to address human rights violations and violence against communities? Mm -hmm. Um, Because obviously, if I want to work in situations where possible genocides have occurred, I should understand the genocides that have occurred on the continent that I live on. So I was very um, dedicated to his course and the, the work that we did there. At the same time, I was actually in um, a laboratory that was bioarchaeology focused. Mm-hmm. And I would enter that space recognizing myself as an anthropologist and being like, okay, this is, you know, this is how research gets done. We're here to um, do reconstruction, collect data. But I felt always kind of aside From the rest of the people who were there, because they were very much into the, the data um, and the approach that that was more scientific and Mm -hmm. like analytical that was going on, whereas a lot of the times that I was there, I felt like I was um, participating in a different like mindset Mm -hmm. than other people. There was a situation um, where there was a uh, infant there was an infant who um, was mostly just represented by cranial remains. And because we were doing reconstruction as the volunteers, it was proving really difficult for a lot of the less experienced osteologists to do reconstruction because as you probably know, Mm -hmm. infant skulls are very different from adult skulls. Um, Harder to identify the bones, harder to do any reconstruction. And this baby's remains had been on the tables there for probably two or three weeks Mm -hmm. and not really getting put away they they hadn't been able to to do anything in terms of reconstruction so people were just kind of avoiding it Mm -hmm. and i had this moment of like tension in in my own thoughts of like this shouldn't be happening Mm -hmm. i don't like that this child is still out here um so i brought it on myself to try to accomplish those tasks so that those remains could be put back into a place that felt more respectful than being out on a table. Mm -hmm. And it was almost, I think, immediately after that uh, event occurred that I had a meeting with Dr. Rivers, who was actually also the advisor that I had for my thesis in undergrad, um, which is very untraditional. I usually go to a historian to do an anthropology thesis in undergrad, but I had a meeting with him and I spoke to him about that incident and his response was there's probably a reason that you're having those feelings. And I think it's because you don't go there to do the same type of research that other people are doing. You're going there because you want to see these bones repatriated Mm -hmm. and your approach to bioarchaeology is less about um, studying the uh, the historical past than it is in activism. Mm-hmm. And I was so shocked <laughs> by this revelation that he had had that I was just sitting there like, I actually feel so validated mm-hmm. by this because I did not understand. I hadn't really processed what I was feeling in those, in those environments. And I was like, oh my God, he knows exactly how to explain this to me. Um, I left that office meeting, went outside and sat down on a like a brick wall, called my mom, said, Mom, (laughs) I think my entire career path has just shifted. And then I sent in a resignation email to that lab that I was no longer going to volunteer there. That all happened within like 15 minutes. It was very literally like. I think, a turning point mm-hmm. in my entire career trajectory that the entire idea of like doing forensics or mm-hmm. uh, more bio arc based research just pivoted mm-hmm. to doing other things. I will also say that I had met um, at that time, I had met one anthropologist who was involved in repatriation mm-hmm. work. And I had previously not really known about it in general. But after um, my junior year was when I fully became aware of like, NAGPRA, repatriation laws, all of that uh, kind of thing, and how anthropologists were actually involved in it and the uh, process. Mm -hmm. And I think all of those things happening at once was just very advantageous for me to just realize there is actually a different calling for me here that does still encompass this idea of returning the identity and the rights to people, but also to their
0: communities and their descendants. Mm -hmm. Well, that is... Awesome, because I didn't know about that experience that you had. So I'm really glad that I got to learn about that. Yeah. Um. Is there anything else like from your undergrad experience that you want to touch on that's like relevant to? Um,
1: Would you count also the UTK internship that happened during that? That was what I was. That's what I was
0: going to talk about next. Was yeah. So right before grad school, Mm -hmm. um, you worked at. University of Tennessee, Knoxville, um, body farm? Yes, okay.
1: so it's uh, formally known as the forensic anthropology center, but colloquially it's yeah, known as the body farm. Yeah. yeah, because I believe, I'm pretty sure it was the first one in the country, um, the best center in the best yeah, collection. So, so yes, yeah, so in the summer of 2018, which I believe was the summer between my junior and senior years, okay. um, that was the first really formal field experience that I had had. And it was an internship that um, brings in four people from around the country every year who are in undergrad. And typically uh, their program is more Um, oriented to bring in people who don't have experience in the field, and they don't have as many opportunities in the areas that they're in to engage in that kind of work. So I was actually really fortunate to know someone who had gone into the internship the year before, Mm. uh, my friend Jaden, who was also in my major, and we were friends in the program. Uh, We talked about the internship, and he suggested to me, you should you should get involved in this and see if you, um, you apply, if they will let you in because you'd be the second person in a row from the same school. Mm-hmm. Miraculously, yeah. I did get in, um, which I feel incredibly privileged to have had that opportunity because I got to go to this amazing program, got to meet all of their faculty. And I even got to participate in some research studies that mm-hmm. were ongoing in the field at the time. So the the main objective is for people who are in the internship to learn about like forensic Daisy's recovery. Just like she is really feeling herself right now. Oh, she's, she's so comfortable. <laughs> she's just sitting behind me on the couch uh, on top of the pillow Adjusting that my mom made. Oh, made
0: that. <laughs> yeah, my mom made that. Well, Daisy loves it. Oh,
1: I'll, I think all of the pets do. Yeah, Morella also loves to sleep on it. So I think it's just perfectly cushioned and sized for them to just like
0: mm-hmm. cuddle on. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. My no, comments. it's fine. Distracting. She's
1: adorable. Um, but the the main objective is for those students to learn about how forensic work occurs. Like, what are the skills that you need? How do you go into a field situation, document um, how remains are in, in situ, mm-hmm. and then recovering them, doing like cleaning, identification, documentation, mm-hmm. and how you would do a biological profile to then report to police Mm -hmm. or other other law. So that was the main objective, but at the same time, you got to help maintain the the field that they have out there. So I think it's like three or four acres now Mm. of land that they use for those internments. Um, You get to learn how to teach classes because Mm. we had uh, other students who were coming through for like weekend courses that we helped conduct their field experiences and you get to participate in some data collection because we had people from uh, law enforcement, we had people from the FBI who were there doing data collection. Um, there were a few times that I had to hold, like uh,
0: how, how, how gruesome do we get in this in this situation? Um, I do know that I had someone on who works at the body farm and they said okay. there are certain things more- contractually yes they're not allowed to talk about so maybe just fair uh, just there were a just... lot of maggots i think okay. is what i'm going yeah. for
1: um there were a lot of, maggots, so like that I was like of yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs>
1: so um you got to see how decomposition works mm-hmm. in in the wild like you could see what kind of environmental factors impact the speed of decom and skeletonization mm-hmm. i i saw maggots go to work yeah. it was pretty insane i have not i uh, i would not have expected it to go that fast i think is what i'm trying to say but summertime the heat and humidity oh. there
0: it gets yeah. hyper speed well i mean i've seen them in our trash cans so. oh yeah there
1: there have been maggots in the trash but... we had we had a
0: population living in the trash can
1: yeah we've boiled them out since then but the, the <laughs> they present helped. when we moved yeah. in so we've yeah. we have gotten rid of them
0: yeah well i'm glad that that was such an interesting experience because Definitely. i feel like every person that i know that's like been to utk or mm-hmm. like worked at utk it's always like has such great things to say about oh the pro uh, not the program but like the facilities there. yeah
1: they they are really amazing i really respect the faculty that they have there especially the people who um are in the collections mm-hmm. i actually the person that i mentioned before the first um nagpur consultant who i ever mm-hmm. spoke to is at utk and she, Ellen LaFaro is, oh, is her name, She yeah. is a staff member. Uh, she is in charge of their bioarchaeology collections. Cool. And she was the first person that actually said the word repatriation in a room that I was in. And just speaking to her for, I think two or three hours made such a huge impact on like my perception of the field and the knowledge of what's necessary mm-hmm. to conduct our research that I think that she might have planted like one of the first seeds. It was definitely her and Dr. Rivers who were the main contributors to me changing the trajectory of my my career.
0: So in case we have listeners that don't know what repatriation Mm -hmm. is, do you want to just like briefly explain... Yeah. Like what NAGPRA entitled certain tribes to or just like Mm -hmm. repatriation in general, because I know NAGPRA is like super confusing. NAGPRA
1: is very, very detail oriented and unfortunately has some oversights that I think should be uh, (laughs) majorly reworked. (laughs) Yes. Um, But repatriation, more generally speaking, is the return of and this is, you know, very broad categories Mm -hmm. we're using here. But both human remains and um, materials that belong to descendant groups usually were wrongfully taken from them without consent mm-hmm. um, to return them from institutions like universities or museums uh, to those descendants and other people who have claims to that um, that ancestry mm-hmm. or a relation to those remains and materials.
0: Yeah, and I would say like probably the biggest oversight of NAGPRA is that this is only a- applied to federally recognized tribes mm-hmm. and I don't even think we can get into it because it is a a very like touchy subject. Yes. But the process of how tribes were allowed to become federally recognized was incredibly It's incredibly fraught. Yeah. <laughs> and um and incredibly biased yes. and uh racist yeah. and really just not once again not understanding Indigenous Americans Mm -hmm. and the fact that like the conditions that to be federally recognized are just absurd.
1: The conditions are very absurd and there are still people fighting today to have recognition. Yeah. Um, I think the biggest oversight other than relation to descendants and the way that the evidence is used to prove that relation is the fact that NAGPRA itself, and I'm you know, gonna get into legislation here, mm-hmm. gonna critique the legislation, um, it actually only applies to public and federally Ugh. owned land. I forgot so about that any, one. yeah. Any remains or materials that are found uh, on privately owned property, mm-hmm. unless there are other laws in place that protect those sites or whatever is contained within them are not covered under NAGPRA. So things that, you know, in the 1920s or 30s, going back to our flapper conversation um, mm-hmm. of people who in that period were going out and doing amateur excavations mm-hmm. or people who were uh, aiding in excavations from universities and were just taking, like, trophy prizes back mm-hmm. home. There are literal human remains just stuffed up into people's attics. And oh, yeah. I was in um, in a volunteer position for 2 years in Ohio where i was actually one of the people who was witnessing those remains come from people's homes mm. into a museum setting when they were like because they passed or yeah okay. usually because they passed um and they were basically surrendered to the institution they were coming in covered in like gasoline because they'd been in someone's garage on the floor um and that that's the level of like Treatment and yeah. disrespect that that those remains have within private holders settings, and unfortunately, that's not something that's covered um, under NAGPRA itself. So that's definitely something that I would like mm-hmm. to see um, reworked, if if we want to put it in a simple term.
0: Yes, most definitely, and I think this transitions nicely into the work that you do now. Um, yeah, and we'll go back and we can talk about your time at GMU. But mm-hmm. I just feel like let's talk about like what it is that you do like day to day for the smithsonian after getting your master's degree well yes. no i think you got the job while you were still finishing up sorry i should have yeah. let you no, explain no, no. how you totally got the fine. job
1: i i did get the recommendation for the job in february of 2020 what year
0: is it 2022 it would have been 2021 because it's Oh, no, it would have been, no, would have been this year
1: is it was this past spring that I actually mm-hmm. um, did all of the documentation and paperwork for that. Yeah. So it was in February before I graduated in May okay. um, that I got the recommendation for the job. That was when I was still writing my thesis. I was acting as a professor. I was also oh, yeah. a teacher and I was working another part time job yeah. that um, my professor slash mentor slash advisor, uh, Dan Temple, told me, hey, I got an email. I'm forwarding this to you, and I'm name dropping you. Would you like to work at the Smithsonian yeah. as a uh, osteologist? I was like, "Am I? What?
2: I'm gonna what?" So
1: the, did you uh, run out the house? Oh my god! I think I don't even remember what I did. I think I read the email, and I think I called my mom again. Yeah. <laughs> Any anything that happens is like a major career yeah. change for me. I'm like, oh, well, um, my mom's got to know yeah. about this right now because yeah. she she has made herself like my biggest cheerleader in all of this she's done so much um learning for herself to understand what i'm doing and why it's important like she read an entire book because i told her that it was good about repatriation and like i i still to this day get kind of like emotional thinking about her reading it and uh talking to her friends and other people that she's interacted with about the job and like what i'm doing why it's important but the actual title of the job that I have right now. Um, I'm a contract osteologist at the Office of Repatriation within the Smithsonian's um, National Museum of Natural History.
0: Very layered, very bureaucratic
1: sounding, but the the baseline for me is that my job is to do documentation, um, essentially like inventory and as much uh, of the superficial data for like pathologies, biological estimates that I can do. Mm so that those remains can have some sort of a paper trail and a history before they go back to their descendant communities. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of this information is specifically done so that in the reports that we send to those descendant communities have the information that they need in order to um, prepare for burials and other Mm -hmm. sort of uh, traditional activities that they need to do for Mm -hmm. their ancestors, because we want to make sure they know who they're getting, how many people are coming back to them, Mm -hmm. um, anything that we can give them that that we think they might perceive as important or they have told us that they want to know. So a lot of that documentation falls on me to make sure that it's um, accessible and clear and that both the Smithsonian has a record and the descendant communities will have knowledge Mm -hmm. as to how their ancestors are coming back to them and what they should
0: expect. Yeah, do you know at all about how these bones ended up in the care of the Smithsonian? Yes. Unfortunately, yes. Um,
1: A lot of them were excavations that were conducted anywhere between like the late 1800s to the early and mid 1900s. Pretty much everything that I see has, and this is, you know, goes back to documentation, how Mm -hmm. well that was conducted, um, has a generalized site name Mm -hmm. from where it was recovered or excavated stolen. Yeah. Um, and most of the stuff that I'm working with right now, most of the remains I'm working with, uh, are from Florida. Okay. But the Smithsonian itself has remains that are coming from literally everywhere. Like there are remains that are coming from different continents. A lot of what we have is coming from, uh, Alaska mm. and like the, the Western coast of the United States, mm-hmm. but we have a lot of things from the Southeast. There's a lot of remains that are coming from the plains. Um, Every, every, every individual I have encountered, uh, I have been able to look back at a cue card essentially mm-hmm. that is saved under the catalog information that we have for those remains. And those are pretty much exclusively to tell us uh, where those remains came from, when they were uh, accessioned, and who mm-hmm. excavated them or who brought them to the institution. A lot of what I've worked with has come through since like 1920 to 1950. Okay. So the majority of all of the remains that are present there at the moment came from that period of time.
0: Yeah. Which, like, to be perfectly honest, some of them could have even come from Franz Boaz because we were just reading about how yeah. he dug up graves to make extra money and sold uh, like skeletal remains just like purposely for mm-hmm. money. Yeah, and um, not Alex, like he found them and then no, was like, I'm gonna donate no, them. He no. was like, No, no, I'm gonna go dig them up and then sell them so I can have money.
1: The unfortunate thing about the Smithsonian's program is that it was actually born out of um, Lichka,
0: mm-hmm. a name
1: that you will probably hear a lot mm-hmm. during uh, like dance classes specifically. Yeah. Uh, hate that man with all of the fiery, burning passion of my soul. Yeah. I, when I taught my course in um, inter to biological anthropology last year we have to do, you know, a theorist slash establishing mm-hmm. figures in the field uh, unit because I wanted to be intensely critical about it. I remember distinctly being like, okay, I have to put a picture of this man in this slide and I'm going to draw devil horns on him and cross out his face, which is exactly how I presented it in class. And on, that's why on the you PowerPoint. are everyone's favorite professor. Because I hate him so much. Yeah. There's literally journal entries written in his hand from his field work in Alaska, talking about the fact that people were begging him in languages he did not understand, but he had a translator begging him to not dig up their grandparents or their their aunts and uncles or their husbands. And he was doing it anyway. And he brought those remains back to the institutions that he worked for. He Mm -hmm. was one of the main purveyors and establishers of the anthropological department at the museum. Mm so there are lots of busts of him still still they're in storage oh, okay i feel very strongly about them being in the same room as a lot of remains yeah um i'm intentionally intensely critical of him and mm-hmm. all of the work that he did uh do you talk about that in your interview i did not okay but it's it's very prevalent in my thesis oh, okay. and that was something that was actually It's been viewed by several of my uh, colleagues there and they have not had any problem with my critical approach to the field, which has been amazing. I Mm -hmm. have a lot of support there and most everyone that I've spoken to on the subject has incredibly um,
0: parallel, aligned views as I do, which is great. I think it's just just our generation of of anthropologists. I mean, not everyone, but I think it's just, it's a real new wave of thinking. Absolutely.
1: And I've even talked to people who are, you know, in their, Post PhD, postdoctoral yeah. phases of life who have been there for like two decades who have very similar views. And it's yeah. wonderful to see that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I, I should have mentioned this before, but my thesis in undergrad was literally surveying the anthropology department and looking at um, demographic breakdowns of students and professors. Mm-hmm. To see how people understood repatriation laws and how they oh. they plan to implement it in their own career.
0: Your undergrad thesis. thesis. That was my undergrad okay, thesis. Cool. Yeah.
1: Um, but it was it was really eye opening for me because I got to see how there is actually somewhat of a generational trend towards repatriation and understanding the benefits that it has both to mm-hmm. scientific and descendant communities. Yeah. How it really does um, encourage collaboration and better science and human rights and activism. Mm-hmm. So I see that both in the survey that I conducted, but also getting to see it in real life is amazing yeah. because I, I'm witnessing it at the Smithsonian. I'm witnessing it in our cohort. I saw it when I was teaching mm-hmm. undergrads last year. Um, it's very, it, it just makes me more comfortable being in this space and continuing mm-hmm. in this career when a lot of the things that I have trouble with or challenge me are those questions of ethics. Like, am I doing, not just the right thing but doing it as well as I can with like reducing the harms that I could contribute to yeah so it's just wonderful to have an environment where that's a conversation that a lot of people are open to having um and where everyone wants to
0: willingly participate in that kind of work we have to um so we kind of talked a bit about around like your time at GMU Mm -hmm. um also in case anyone's curious Dr. Daniel Temple uh, does not allow us to call him Dr. Temple. We have to call him Dan or Temple. I do. So, if you're wondering uh, why we're talking about our advisor, well, her former advisor, my current advisor, in a more uh, informal manner, that is because that's what has been demanded of us. Right. We're on a first name basis with Dan from day one. Yes. So, uh, yeah, when I would email him Dr. Temple, uh, no, it's Dan or Temple. Please do not call me that. All right, cool. (laughs) Got it. So, yeah, you um, moved from Ohio. I did to Northern Virginia to start your master's degree at George Mason University. Yes. What made you pick George Mason? Amazing question again. And it's not even close to a similar answer as last time
1: because in in choosing a master's program, you really have to put thought into like where you're going and why. Mm-hmm. Um, with undergrad, I feel like it's a little easier because a lot of it is driven by like finances because yeah. there's not a lot of opportunities for you to get, um, like TA shifts or other funding, when you're doing undergrad, you're looking for somewhere that is both financially supportive and it's going to be supportive of like the foundations Mm -hmm. of your learning. Um, But during the gap year that I had uh, at, in Ohio, um, between my undergrad and master's program, I was working and I was thinking about, do I want to do a master's? Mm -hmm. How am I going to pursue this? What impact can I make? if I go into a graduate degree program and then have these mm-hmm. like higher level degrees mm-hmm. and can contribute to maybe larger scale um, changes within the institution. And I was kind of identifying programs that I could apply to on my own. And then I went to one of my mentors in the anthropology uh, department, which was Clark Spencer yeah. Larson, we all know the name. Yeah. Um, he he was one of my professors, so he taught me bioarchaeology. Um, I worked with him and I was his TA for osteology. So like we were pretty well, yeah. well acquainted with each other. So yeah. I went to him and I was like, hey, <laughs> do you know where I should apply to go to a master's program? And he said, Absolutely I do. Yeah. Here's my short list, but I really want you to go to GMU. Yeah. And I was like, why do you want me to go to GMU? And Dr. Larson said, because two of my PhD students are running that program and they are running it well
0: um facts something i will continue to come back to like if you ever hear me complaining about grad school it's the workload i'm not ever complaining about klaus and temple they're no
1: amazing people um so yeah he said dan and hagen these are your guys apply to them both see who you get go from there and i said okay i've never been to virginia (laughs) let's let's find out if they're interested in me so i basically addressed uh, the two of them in my application was like, I'm interested in repatriation. Mm-hmm. NAGPRA is, you know, my first cause. I want to learn more about bioarchaeology, but I want to do this in a framework mm-hmm. that lends to activism and is serving these communities. Yeah. And Dan Temple said, get over here. <laughs> as fast as you can. Right. I remember getting the phone call oh. and I kid you not, it was like probably the first week of March of
0: 2020. Oh my yes. God.
1: It was, wow. it was, I'm not even exaggerating. It was probably the day before. It was like the night before I went to Los Angeles to visit a friend. And that's when COVID hit. Exactly. Yeah. I, I got the phone call from Dan. He said, I want you to be my student. You're my first pick and I want you to be my TA. Um, not his TA, but his choice for ATA for, for a the, TA the bio. Ship, yeah. And I I was ecstatic because I was like, wow, I actually got into a master's program. This is yeah. amazing. I'm, you know, always self-doubting. I was like, there's no way I'm gonna get in.
0: Yeah. Um
1: Safe, literally. Right. Yeah. But I was like, that's incredible. Um, I'm still waiting on responses from a couple couple of other schools that I'd applied to. And he was like yeah let me just tell you more about the area about the program mm-hmm. by the way we are actually hiring on someone who is uh, a newer scholar but has this amazing oh. pioneering work and i was like okay can I get a name like who is this person And he goes oh it's rick smith i don't know if you've heard of him or met him and in my brain there was like this little little mm-hmm. like key that was turning in a lock mm-hmm. and i was like there's a memory here that i have to unbury but I was like, okay, yeah, I think the name is familiar. I don't, I don't really know. He was like, yeah, we're pretty sure we're going to get him. And I went back into, (laughs) I have so many word documents Mm -hmm. of like lists of programs and scholars that I admire or that I want to participate in. And I was like, Rick Smith, let's just do a Google search and a, and a control F in my docs. Rick Smith was someone I had met at the AABA's that previous year in Cleveland, mm-hmm. who I was sitting in on one of their, uh, I believe it was a seminar, but it was a activity of, you know, learning about and discussing the citation of underrepresented authors in mm-hmm. anthropology. And so we were talking about a lot of feminist Korean, indigenous authors and like how you want to incorporate them in your research, especially when the stuff that you're doing involves those communities and mm-hmm. any types of like consequences for them. And I remember meeting them and being like, I, admire this person's work so much. And I want to know them and work with them. Mm -hmm. And I knew at the time I'd written it down the word document which school he was in and hadn't thought about applying there. Mm -hmm. And then hearing that that GMU was hiring Rick, I was like, there's no way this is possible. Mm Guess who I TA'd for for
2: two semesters, yes, <laughs> Rick Smith. Awesome.
1: Um, so it was that was another selling point for me when I found out I was like, this is absolutely happening. I'm yeah. going here and it's going to be an amazing experience. I'm going to have so many different positive influences for the work that I want to do. Um, and I got that that really great burst of excitement. I went to see a friend in California with my other friend from Ohio. And then immediately after touching the ground in the plane back in Ohio, it was pandemonium. I went to Walmart literally the next day and it was cleaned out. And I was like, Oh, something really
0: bad yeah. is happening. <laughs> uh, and then, yeah, the next two years occurred. Yeah. And then you like moved to Virginia in the middle of like a pandemic. I did. Yeah. I actually moved to Virginia, I think
1: two months after I'd seen it for the first time, which is very much what I did in Ohio as well. Yeah. Um, I saw it and I went, this, this is good. Yeah. I'm just going to move here. Yeah. And also not, uh, recognizing that this area of virginia is also essentially just the suburban spread of
0: Of dc DC. (laughs) yeah for sure yeah so when i got my call from temple i don't know if i've told you this so i had i was like in a massage and i like you know you like put your phone on silent you like put it away and obviously like it you're like quiet in the building because other Mm -hmm. people are having massages and i take my phone out and i look at it and there's a missed call from a Virginia number and a text saying please call me back Uh, we're looking forward to having you in the program
1: Dan. <laughs> and I'm like,
0: because this man doesn't email. No. He texts and calls you. So I've been expecting an email this whole time. Right. I pick up my phone, and I'm like, and I'm, you know, paying for my massage. And I'm freaking out because I right. realize what it means. And mm-hmm. the poor masseuse is like, are you okay? Did I cause pain? Like, are Did you? Did I hurt you? And I'm looking at you know, I was like, no, I am so good. I'm just, I'm just like, out. don't know how to, like, process because Danielle was the same way, like, here are the schools that I think would be good for you. Do not miss out on GMU. You have to at yes. least apply to GMU. Yes. Like, I'm not letting you get off the hook without at least, like, talking to the people it. there and, like, considering it. Because mm-hmm. she's known Temple and Klaus for a long time and really respects their work Absolutely. and respect knows that they are people that foster a good working environment. Not only are they good researchers, but they foster an environment of friendship, and
1: oh, most they definitely. care about
0: supporting their students in in and out of the classroom, mm-hmm. which is very true. So yeah, that was that was my experience. Then I got in the car and I was like screaming. and yeah. I called him back <laughs> and I was like, "Ah, everything's amazing." Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's how I got here. Yeah, and and, and here she is. And here I am. Um. So. Let's do a fun, we'll talk about your thesis in a second. But oh, we'll, for sure. Just to start, like, what are some of your fondest memories from like living in Nova and sorry, that's Northern Virginia. Yeah. Um, you've made some really great friends. Mm-hmm. Just like, what are some fun things that you've yeah. taken from your time here? Um,
1: clearly, I have an absolute unconditional love for this department. Mm-hmm. Um, the cohort that I was with and has grown because I see my cohort as any year that I've interacted with. Yeah. So that is the people who were a year ahead of me who who graduated my first year through the people who are in the cohort entering Mm -hmm. it now because i'm still getting to interact with them uh through extension of like other students that are still in the program but i have made so many close friends both within students and within um my professors and Mm -hmm. my advisors like everyone has been so outrageously supportive of my work um both like in classroom settings and also when I am home having like an anxiety attack about the fact that I wrote a 300 page thesis I did that to myself no one else is responsible but me that was all me no one should expect to come to this program and write a 300 page thesis I did that to myself and everyone who had to read it yeah. uh, I was like don't do that to me again ever. I very literally have a note in my acknowledgements that says special thanks to Daniel Temple for reading this twice, I told you, and I'm sorry. Like, I was very honest with him from the outset that I was like, you accepted an anthropologist. You also accepted an English major. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to tell you right now that that was a mistake. (laughs) And that's where you
0: went wrong. Exactly.
1: Exactly. That's when you did it to yourself. Um, But all of the memories that I have that are really strong are about being with those people and having them as my support network. Um, Getting to explore this region, both by myself and with these people, has been incredible because Northern Virginia itself, I describe it in a way that I think is very similar to how Dan first introduced me to it on that phone call, was that you can drive in 30 minutes, Mm. uh, 30-minute radius from Mm -hmm. any point in Northern Virginia, and you can end up in a place that is like, very urbanized, very active, a lot of diversity. You can get somewhere that's like very suburban, it's like comfortable sort of living situations with houses and very pretty neighborhoods. Or you can go somewhere that's like outrageously rural. That reminds yeah. me very much of where I grew up. And it's, it's like this amazing and unusual conglomeration of all of these different regions in the United yeah. States that it's all happening here,
2: Mm
1: -hmm. um, that I don't know of other places that have that kind of accessibility and that sort of variety. Yeah. And there's
0: maybe what, maybe a hundred museums within within that 30 minute radius of us.
1: So many museums and just, not just the the large institutions that we're familiar with, but like little neighborhood museums or like other places that you can go and say, you know, this is a site of a historical event or yeah, like someone from Alexandria
0: or Mount Vernon yes,
1: or even Vienna. They have yeah. this amazing um, Freedmen's store that oh. is also a museum. So they can introduce you to like the history of the city and the way that it inter- interacted with like um post-Civil War relationships. Mm-hmm. It was it's really incredible just yeah. to get to see that kind of thing all over the, the region. Uh, and of course, I have to say it because we talked about me adopting Mo in Ohio, but uh-huh. I adopted Vincent while I lived here. Yes. And uh, my little son, um, he he's my little baby, and he's probably upstairs wondering why he can hear me talking and he's not, mm-hmm. you know, in my lap. Yeah. But um, he has to be part of it too, because that was one of the things that I got to do. I think the last summer um, was, was getting to adopt him. And he's been with me ever since.
0: Yes. And he and Celia are the roommate's cat are lovers yes and they're around the same age and they both (laughs) have a lot of energy so they're perfect for each other they oh man i which was so funny because they're they're the way they met we we were all a little were
1: a little worried we're like okay how how is this gonna work this maybe it's not
0: gonna go too Uh, is their energy gonna be like good chemistry or is it gonna be like an explosion so the first three days were rough but ever since then they've just been like inseparable absolutely Yeah. Yeah. yeah and then every once in a while they bug morella and she has to put him in her place <laughs> yeah she does or kieran tries to jump daisy and i have to put him in his place
1: someone's someone gets put in their place but everyone at the end of the day is like okay we understand yeah. the established sure. like relationships that we have here the hierarchy the pecking
0: order yeah. and mo is always at the top yeah she's sure. above all of us yeah somehow <laughs> everyone in this house we the thing we defer to her, her yeah. she is the leader yeah um so what was your thesis oh, on? All right, so I the actually, infamous three hundred page I thesis. I did that write this down. So Dan's not letting anyone ever do ever again.
1: No, he is very adamant to be like, "Hey guys, Meg oh, sorry, did this thing. Never do this." Yeah, and I'm like, I agree. Mm-hmm. No, I fully agree. Yeah. Um, so I I was trying to figure out if I should like read the abstract out to you to give you like a clearer idea of what it is, but I think that it might just be better if I tried to explain it mm-hmm. in like the most simple way, and then sort of give you a breakdown of what the chapters encompassed. Mm -hmm. So the title of my thesis was an Indigenous life history approach uh, colon supporting informed and informative bioarchaeology. So my thesis itself was much more um, theory and literature drawn Mm -hmm. and uh, experimental in form, Mm -hmm. because as a lot of people experienced during the pandemic, doing research with any collections through museums or other institutions was nigh impossible. Mm -hmm. I was not able to, because my original plan was to actually interact with remains that had been consented for research Mm -hmm. um, to do this kind of research. But because that was not possible within the timeframe that I was in the program, I approached Dan and I said, what if I did something where I was doing more of a model of research development, Mm -hmm. where I am taking all of these different, um, theories, methodologies and methods and saying, if we do it in this configuration, Mm -hmm. our research will not only be more informative for us, but will be more informed in the way that it's taking from a lot of different, um, more critical Mm -hmm. and, uh, comprehensive lenses to conduct that research. So I started into um, developing this sort of model for how I would want to conduct bioarchaeology in the future. And what I ended up coming through with was this very braided approach to bioarchaeology that is focusing mostly on how the research impacts descendant groups Mm -hmm. and how we can understand history through frameworks that are not Mm -hmm. traditionally used in anthropology. Um, So it had eight chapters. (laughs) And as I said, it had 300 pages, um, which featured a lot of case studies that were primarily from the American Southwest, um, because that was somewhere that I had some familiarity with Mm -hmm. from past work. And it was also a place that I thought would be um, like the perfect environment for that kind of collaborative and also very, um, necessary, uh, critical work. Mm -hmm. The Southwest has so much history in terms of like the kind of archaeology, anthropology, uh, ethnology that's been performed there. Mm -hmm. And being able to go into those spaces where there's already Uh, pre-existing collaborative relationships, as well as very well-established indigenous programs for anthropology and preservation, I was like, this is the place where a model like this could be very beneficial. So I started out in the thesis talking about um, how decolonization and activism can be enacted within the field of anthropology. There's a very good history of this that I kind of get into mm-hmm. like other anthropologists who have started this field, a lot of them being like black feminist authors, indigenous authors and scholars who make huge impacts on the way the anthropology started to be conducted in like the mid 20th century and onwards. Um, I then moved into talking about Theories from queer, indigenous and feminist anthropologies, how those have sort of played into my approach uh, and the way that I conduct myself in the field or how I do analysis, Mm -hmm. as well as during the time of my thesis, I learned a lot about um, science and technology studies or STS from Mm -hmm. Rick Smith. That also became a huge part of the way that I talked about critical approaches within the field and why those are uh, very important and i was thinking about how those frameworks sort of play into this um kaleidoscope of reframing the way that bioarchaeology is done how it changes the the way that we process um, data and the way that we ask questions how we're asking them who we're asking them with Mm -hmm. and uh moving into the actual um way that bioarchaeology is conducted i was thinking about um context and how very often in that same sort of traditional way that science is done, there's a specific focus on certain types of data or prioritizing this layer of of an environment or remains Mm -hmm. over other things that are very contextualizing and are important. A lot of the times, uh, for example, like in bioarchaeology, mortuary archaeology is separated mm-hmm. from bioarchaeology. People aren't really talking about like very detailed context mm-hmm. of these remains in relation to the specific remains that are there. Yeah, You might get, you know, an overarching, this is what the landscape mm-hmm. looks like, these are the kinds of things that we're finding in these, uh, in these graves. But I wanted to talk more about like, how can we talk about and contextualize these remains to remind ourselves that these are essentially cemeteries. These are burials. These are not just like caches of bones that we Mm -hmm. are discovering that we can just take out of that context. And Mm
2: -hmm.
1: that also brought me to the idea of like how critical um, life history and stress approaches can be contextualized and doing that within the framework of biodistance. So this is like the multi-layered me breaking down in multiple chapters saying These are all of the things that we should be considering and we're going to build them all on top of each other to try to create this more detailed uh, informed approach, but thinking about how biodistance as well as mortuary archaeology can be studied to sort of uncover. um, Household community identity and how this is also something we need to frame within the ideas of colonization resistance. Um, the embodiment of those those experiences when there is so much of a tension between populations and to see how that affects not only the community, but households and Mm. how those households can be broken down into individuals and how those relations worked. Mm -hmm. So it's very much in this idea of like a cosmological expansion to the way that we're looking at bioarchaeological work and thinking about it, not just on individual or community stands but seeing how those things interplay and the constant relational mm-hmm. um, trajectory of of those stressors or the kind of lived experience that we see embodied both in remains and in the mortuary context so i ended up calling this very detail oriented and multi-limbed approach indigenous life history because in my um, exploration of theories and methods I saw indigenous theory as being the most apt uh, venue of like thought and analysis that could be used in approaches to doing any types of research with indigenous remains or in collaboration with indigenous communities, because that is the kind of theory that's been developed to address the issues that have occurred previously within the field. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is, this is what we need to see actually implemented in current research if any of those communities are involved. But the, the other part of that was, you know, if I'm doing this work as a bioarchaeologist who is working in collaboration with these communities, you also need to think about like, okay, how is this working in an anthropological setting? How are we doing this within institutions? And from my uh, understanding and my learning through the last two years, I saw life history approaches as being probably the most representative of human life Mm -hmm. experience and embodiment as well as how it is both external and internal um, and all of these like multi-layered approaches seems to fit within both an indigenous approach and a life history approach because they're very much about relational changes in life um, embodiment seeing how identity and individual uh individual experience is connected mm-hmm. to community experience in the environment mm-hmm very land-based, very much about um, existence from the beginning to the end of life and everything afterwards. So the, the frameworks that I was working with just ended up coalescing in a way that I'd never really mm-hmm. expected them to. Um, and it ended up coming out as a really strong way of visualizing community and survival and resilience within uh, the context of colonialism. So I did uh, sort of a breakdown in the last couple of chapters of how this framework can be applied to bioarchaeological mm-hmm. research with um, a specification to the American Southwest to kind of remedy the way that uh, research has been approached in the past. And there are amazing scholars who work in collaborative fields out there already um, who are already doing this kind of work and not within you know the, the framework I've tried to develop here but very similar ways of saying we need to think about context. We need to think about relation and about full lived experience. Mm -hmm. We need to really, really think about how colonialism has impacted populations, all of these things. So that that is going on in collaborative projects already. Um, But I was like, how can we see all of these things kind of come together and produce an even more uh, informative science? But my conclusions, which the chapter, I actually called it Legacies, Mm um because there's so much of a legacy already existing of anthropology within a broader context but also within the american southwest thinking about how many of the remains that i have worked with have been from the southwest Mm -hmm. and they are now in institutions um have not been repatriated or are in the process still of being repatriated Mm -hmm. and my final conclusion and the legacy that i want the work that i do to have is to enact repatriation as science Um, in the same way that people talk about like the scientific method you've got your hypotheses methods data questions all of these things i want the final step of all of the work that i do and all of the things that happened before it to be about repatriation and the restitution of both life and land to indigenous communities Um, because that to me is the motivation of my work it all kind of impinges on this this idea of using institutions and using science as activism,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, which is also how I approach all of the way that I conduct myself in the field, the projects that I want to do in the future,
2: yeah.
1: the way that I have um, tried to, to frame my potential dissertation mm-hmm. when it comes to applications for PhD programs. It all comes back to how can we enact an activist anthropology mm-hmm that is beneficial to serving these communities and actually interacting with them and collaborating with them in ways that they see as um, appropriate Mm -hmm. and helping them to answer questions that they have or restituting the kinds of
0: um, things that have been stolen from them. Wow. (laughs) So that was my thesis. (laughs) Yeah. That's awesome. Thank you for taking the time to really outline your thesis. Um, I hope
1: it was clear. It's it's hard to get 300 pages yeah. into a succinct explanation of what I'm trying yeah. to do.
0: So my last question is, when are you going to publish that as a book? I actually have planned to do this. Yeah. Um,
1: I mean, that's the thing about, like, my goals in the field are very much based in this activism, but mm-hmm. I think a lot of that's going to come not just through um, collaborative work or consultation or repatriation, but also through publications, yeah. whether that be... In essays, if it's going to be in journals, I mm-hmm. would love to turn this into a book. I think that the best way to start out with it is to maybe break it into smaller pieces, things that are more digestible, and say, you know, here's this idea that I have about why we mm-hmm. should contextualize bioarchaeology with mortuary archaeology in a in a way that's also reflecting on the FQI, which is uh, feminist, feminist, queer, indigenous theories. And say, here's a bunch of, you know, little articles that I can put out that kind of establish what I'm talking about here, and then just drop the (laughs) the tome, if you will, of all of my thoughts that I've had for the last, like, six or seven years Mm -hmm. uh, in anthropology. But I do, I do intend on eventually turning it into a book. Who knows? Maybe that'll be my dissertation, is to have... um, actual field work that is collaborative and have so a ninth already, chapter yeah you've already <laughs>
0: literally written like most of your most i have unfortunately
1: well and unfortunately i was first gonna first say, to work with me i guess you're gonna um, they're gonna
0: get you out of there in like three four years yeah be so happy they're gonna it. be
1: thrilled i are gonna be like wow this was the easiest phd we've ever done why because she did it like two years ago yeah. and now she's here to just continue doing it mm-hmm. uh but like i said the The idea of doing um, collaborative outreach and in public engagement all still comes back to the ability of people to like read what I've written. Mm -hmm. And I did write my thesis in a way it doesn't read the way that most undergrad or master's theses do, where it does feel very technical. I definitely went at it at much more of an English major's theoretical approach. And there's a lot to it that people would say like, oh, this is this is so like objective or opinionated or something like that. But I'm really trying to put, um, for lack of a better word, the humanity back into the human sciences. I put emotion into this project because yeah. I have very strong feelings and passions that are just ingrained into every word that I write down. Mm-hmm. And to write it um felt like a disservice to me. So I was like, I need to write this in a way that is expressing the feelings that I'm having and the feelings that I think should be considered within this type of work. Because it's not just about how I uh, am informed on this or like the kinds of experience that I've had, but the way that we got here and why this work is important. Mm -hmm. So to write it as sort of a topical, theoretical data analysis, Mm -hmm. I was like, there's no way that this is going to happen, which is also why it's 300 pages. (laughs) For sure. It was me waxing poetic in the conclusions every time and being like, you know what?
0: Bad. (laughs) We should do better, guys. (laughs) Yeah. But for many words. Yeah. Well, Thank you so much. I think the listeners are gonna love this episode. Yay, There's yeah. been like an outcry for more bioarch stuff. Oh wow! So, I hope yeah. that I can satisfy for with, sure, yeah. with my many bones experiences. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. And yeah. uh, I, I already know everyone's gonna love this. Thank you. We should do lunch. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's almost like <laughs> We're just like, should like go to our rock, walk in our kitchen and right, like 20 feet away from us make, make ourselves some lunch. food. Yeah. <laughs> sounds sounds good. Yeah. Perfect. Sounds like a date. Amazing. <laughs>